From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Homeland Security is building a coronavirus procurement response team. Chief Procurement Officer Soraya Correa writes the team's a response to the explosion in procurement requests the virus response has generated. Federal Times reports Correa says the team includes experts with experience in operational procurement, procurement policy, industry, industry engagement, strategic sourcing, and procurement innovation. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is hiring a new chief data officer. The agency says the candidate will advance, quote, CDC's public health data and IT modernization initiatives and facilitate a data governance and standards structure. The job posting on the CDC website says the position's a GS-14 job that the CDC will base in Atlanta. The Defense Information Systems Agency in Lidos will move forward with the Global Solutions Management Operations II contract after the denial of a protest. General Dynamics Information Technology protested the contract right after DISA awarded it in December. FedScoop reports the contracts for 10 years worth up to $6.5 billion. Withdrawals from the Thrift Savings Plan are up more than 100%. 96,000 participants took out money in February, but 218,000 withdrew in March. And the ups and downs of the stock markets have some participants in the TSP spinning. Greg Klingler is director of Giba Wealth Management. Greg, thanks for coming on the program. You sent me some notes about uh, the, your advice for people right now regarding the Thrift Savings Plan. And the main theme of this I love, it's keep calm and stay invested. Why is that important right now, Greg? Well, now more than anything, any other time, I mean, straying away from emotions and really focusing on what is mathematically sound for your portfolio, that's really the, the thing that's gonna protect you going forward. You know, we saw people make really unfortunate decisions back in 2008 and 2009 when they pulled all their money out of the G fund and then that money sat in the G fund and they never were able to come back. And those people had to ultimately extend their work life for three, four, five years. And that's what we don't wanna see happen again in this downturn, now that we're sitting at about 25% down in the S&P 500. Um, you write uh, three points that people should keep in mind, and because of what you just mentioned, I'm gonna take them in reverse order. The third one that you wrote was market timing doesn't work, and I thought of ex I've been thinking of exactly the same thing that you just mentioned over the past couple of weeks. 2008, 2009, people went from CS&I into the G Fund, panicked, they basically sold low and had to buy back in high. And this reminder that market timing doesn't work, I think, is really important, Greg. Yeah, numerous studies have done. You know, people always want to try to outsmart the market. The fact is people don't outsmart the market. At the true bottom of past bear markets, there is typically very, very little volume that occurs um, around that time because almost nobody gets the bottom right. I can tell you right now, we're probably closer to the bottom than we are to the top. But with that being said, we're all dealing with very incomplete information here. Um, the last thing you want to do is try to outsmart the market because typically speaking, it, it is going to burn you. I think incomplete information is a terrific way to phrase this, Greg. I was just talking to my son the other day and we were talking about his investment portfolio is obviously way, way, way far from retirement. 
But I mentioned to you before we went on the air, and my advice to him was, if you told me six months ago I could buy the S&P 500 at 2500 I would take all of that I could get all day long because my window is not, you know, six months from now or tomorrow. It's at least a few years out. His is many years out. I mean, this is what we keep telling our members and keep communicating with to our members, and we have been over the last month or so. Um, if you had a good portfolio in February, it's still a good portfolio today. If you had fixed assets sitting there to protect you from things just like this, like a bear market, those fixed assets are still there, and a good portfolio is always designed to protect against bear markets. You know, the, the fact that we're down 25% from the, from the highs in February, that's not necessarily a surprise. Bear markets happen. The market's down pretty much one year for every two and a half years that it's up. Um, what is the surprise is what's causing this bear market. So um, Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors of our time, he has a great quote. He likes his stocks like he likes his socks on sale. And this is effectively what you can do. Large companies, companies with large cash positions, after the dust settles, they're still going to be there. And if you can buy it 25% cheaper now than you could in February, that's not such a bad idea. Right. So leaning into the market now, it's normally a good idea. The first two points, I think, are kind of tied together, although you have them separated. The first one's you're in it for the long term, and the second one is emotional decisions may come back to haunt you. The reason they're tied together is I, I certainly understand the emotional response when somebody sees something, sees the market going down 25%. Um, but this is, like I said, the long haul even if you're thinking six months, a year, two years from now, that's long-term in investing. Uh, th th that's kind of the minimal long-term window, isn't it, Greg? Yeah, um, you know, the, the market has never lost money over a 10-year period. So what we really wanna focus on is, you know, if a good portfolio protects the money that you're gonna spend over the next three, five, even seven years, um, after that, you can take chances in the market. The end, because retirements generally last 20 or 30 years, you want to take chances in the market. And you want to understand that the market's going to go up, the market's going to go down. Long term, we have always seen the market go up. Um, There's an interesting uh, study that, that was done that told us that typically people, they feel losses far greater than they feel comparable gains. And that's what we see here. It, the stock market's one of the few things where people actually want to buy things that are very expensive when everything else in our lives tells us we should buy things on sale. So you really do need to step away from that emotion, be very um, cognitive and measured in your approach, and you know, enjoy the ride. What are you telling people, we have about a minute left, Greg, what are you telling people who are getting close to retirement and who are worrying that they'll have to extend their work lives? Well. Federal employees, they have a level of protection that your, your average private sector people don't have. First off, they're still getting paychecks, which is great. Um, second off, they do have this pension, and the pension is very strong. So effectively, when they enter retirement, they probably will have to pull less money out of their, their TSP than um, the average private sector employee would have to do. So they are protected in that way. And if you have enough money in your fixed accounts that are not, not tied to the market, um, they can weather the storm, take their time, withdraw from that account, and let their equity positions go back up. Greg, thanks very much for coming on, as always. It's great to hear you. It's my pleasure. Up next, forging America's Alliance Innovation Base. Straight ahead on Government Matters, creating and protecting innovative technology 
and working with our allies better. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Every military and diplomatic leader says one key to gaining and maintaining technological advances over competitors is alliances. Those alliances could be the foundation for an alliance innovation base. Daniel Kleiman's director of the Asia-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and your colleagues are writing about forging an alliance innovation base. And you have five bases, essentially, that you want the government and other stakeholders to work on. I'd like to walk through each of those, if I could, please. The first one is strengthening America's toolkit for technology engagement. What do you and your colleagues mean by that, Dan? Well, first, thank you for having me on the program today. When we talk about strengthening America's toolkit for tech engagement with allies, we're really thinking about growing the instruments by which the U.S. government works with allies to leverage technology uh, to address shared national security challenges. So some of the concrete ideas, for example, that we have are to uh, expand funding for very specific programs like the Office of Naval Research Global, uh, which directly work with allies and do technology scouting. Um, some of the other ideas uh, that we have for that, for example, uh, would be to take uh, international startup engagement, uh, which the DOD is already doing, uh, trying to solicit uh, pitches from startups and allies and to grow that. Um, other ideas, for example, are to take the Defense Innovation Unit, which today has mostly a domestic mandate, and to help it go global uh, with more resources, more political backing. Another uh, item that you and your colleagues are writing up about is building ally awareness and capacity. Now, China builds ally capacity basically by usury lending. What's the way that, the, uh, that we would do something like that, that we would build capacity among our, our allies? A great need across U.S. allies is to have a better understanding of what technology needs to be protected. So number one is ensuring that allies have that kind of very granular tech protection list. Uh, number two is to help ally publics understand the nature of the threat, to understand China's tech acquisition strategy. And so, for example, uh, the U.S. government could launch a public diplomacy campaign, both to promote awareness and even to encourage ally governments to conduct open source or public studies on kind of China's activities within their borders to acquire technology. Uh, and even ideas like, for example, uh, working with researchers in the U.S. to promote dialogue with their ally counterparts on the nature of kind of the China challenge to research integrity. Uh, last but not least, a lot of allies have not been focused on kind of tech protection. Uh, as a security challenge. They've been focused on issues like counterterrorism. And so helping ally intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies retool is another critical way the U.S. could work together with our allies. Now, when you're talking about technology protection, are you talking about things like cybersecurity and IP protection, which has been a tremendous problem in the defense industrial base in the United States, or are you talking about something different? Uh, certainly, tech protection includes all those, but it's broader. At the end of the day, China has a pretty comprehensive strategy to extract technology from the United States and its allies that runs the gamut from cyber-enabled economic espionage to 
perfectly legal investments in startups and major tech companies. So at the end of the day, tech protection has to be inclusive of all of that and more. For example, uh, research collaborations between universities in China and the US and allies are another vector by which China acquires technology. So it can't just be about cybersecurity. Of course, that's important, but it's only one area. Another line of effort that you're writing about is that regarding tech protection is creating positive incentives for technology protection. You're also writing about launching new collaborative platforms. What would those look like, Dan? Sure, let me just quickly speak to the need for incentives. That For many US allies, uh, tech protection incurs a cost, whether it's forgoing Chinese investments or export opportunities to China of their high-tech goods. And so the US needs to create benefits uh, that partly offset the cost of taking tech protection measures. In terms of new platforms specifically, uh, we have a few ideas. One, for example, is to create bilateral national security innovation funds, essentially alliance funds that would uh, s provide resources for quick fire seed projects uh, or other types of engagements. Another, I think, really interesting idea is to create essentially a kind of a shared platform that would bring together innovators and entrepreneurs around national security themes the U.S. shares with allies, ideally with both public and private funding. Um, so there are a lot of, I think, interesting areas where the U.S. could do more in this space. The last item is leveraging the U.S.-Japan alliance. What would you like to see us do to work more closely, more tightly with our Japanese allies? When the United States looks around the world, Japan is, is best positioned among American allies to really backstop this concept of creating an alliance innovation base. It certainly shares similar threat perceptions of China, uh, seeks to protect technology, and has uh, significant innovative capacities. And so there are a number of areas the U.S. could deepen cooperation with Japan around. Uh, one, for example, would be trying to create more mechanisms to share what are currently kind of government-held data sets in a kind of secure way, and then provide that to companies and researchers in both uh, countries uh, to try to offset China's kind of data advantage given its scale. Uh, another area of common cooperation could be a kind of bilateral national security innovation fund. Uh, and yet one other area could be a dialogue on research integrity, essentially taking Japanese and U.S. academic leaders, bringing them together and helping them to develop kind of best practices for how do you manage research partnerships with China, and then ideally sharing those best practices with other allies as well. There's great opportunity. Dan, Dan, there's a lot more meat here I would like to cover, but we're out of time. I appreciate you coming on. Dan Kleiman of the Center for a New American Security. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Up next, the Air Force's fight against the coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the force needs and how small businesses can help. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Air Force wants help from small businesses with its response to the coronavirus pandemic. AF Ventures has a new solicitation for decision support, readiness, logistics, personnel needs, and medical needs. Deborah James was 23rd Secretary of the Air Force. She's author of Aim High, Chart Your Course, and Find Success. Madam Secretary, thanks for coming on under these interesting circumstances. What's your sense of the response so far of the Air Force to the coronavirus, ma'am? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Francis, for having me. And these are really challenging times. You're certainly right about that. Um, the Air Force has really mounted quite an extensive response thus far to the coronavirus. And I think you're going to see even more to come in the days and weeks ahead. And I would divide the answer to that question really into two parts. 
First of all, externally, for what is the Air Force doing for the United States of America and for our citizens? They are providing very important aeromedical types of support as well as airlift support for important supplies. They've been evacuating American citizens from overseas, uh, et cetera. They've sent uh, thousands of personnel along with the other services to help supplement civilian authorities in the medical profession. So the Air Force has been certainly doing its part. And as I said, I think you're going to see even more in the times to come. Then internally, the Air Force is also taking action to protect airmen as well as to double down on the most important missions at this time, because not everything can be accomplished as it has been in the past. And so the chief directed each major commander to decide which are the most mission essential tasks and to double down on those tasks and to cut back on other things. And so once again, you're going to see, I think, emphasis on aeromedical, on the mobility missions, which are so important. You're going to see the nuclear enterprise remain strong and vigilant. Um, and there are other areas as well we'll learn more about. You're going to see, likewise, cutbacks in other areas, normal business travel, permanent changes of station. Recruiting is now being done virtually. Basic training is still going on, but it's being cut back. And the Air Force Academy, for the first time ever, is going to do an online graduation with its seniors without parents and without um, other spectators in the audience. All other cadets have been sent home. So lots of things are changing, uh, but the Air Force is stepping up. You mentioned uh, General Goldfein's orders to his subordinates about how to keep kind of basically the business of the Air Force going on under these conditions. It strikes me that's maybe the most difficult leadership challenge. You write about leadership in your book, and that strikes me as maybe the most important thing leadership-wise is all of the usual business of all of these organizations, the Air Force, the other branches of the military, civilian agencies, have to continue during times like this, right, Madam Secretary? That's absolutely right. And so I certainly agree with the Chief's direction. Uh, not everything is as important as everything else, particularly in times of crisis. And that's where you really, really have to prioritize. I think that's what they're trying to do. I think it's also very important in times of crisis to remain calm to tell people the truth, to be transparent with as much information as you can do, to communicate on a regular basis, once and done, doesn't work anytime, let alone in times of crisis. And it's also very important for leaders to remain hopeful and in the midst of the fog, to be able to see through the fog and look for the important opportunities on the horizon, because those opportunities are always there if you look for them. So that's kind of where I wanted to go, because one of the things I've enjoyed talking about over the last couple of weeks with experienced leaders like you is what you look for in a time like this that will work or improve the delivery on mission after all of this is over. What do you do differently six months from now, a year from now, then you might, something you might not have learned had this crisis not hit? Well, the first thing I'll tell you is, you already mentioned it, Francis, and that is this outreach that the Air Force is making, particularly to small business, but I think you could see it expand to larger businesses as well, to ask if there are creative approaches and products which fall into some of the categories you mentioned, decision support, readiness, logistics, et cetera, that could help not only inform the Air Force to help with this pandemic crisis that we face, but if it were to really reach fruition, it could help way beyond the Air Force, society at large. So the Air Force Ventures Organization did put out this RFP asking for products and solutions uh, that could address uh, or answer questions such as 
where will this pandemic crisis point likely hit next? So to be able to predict where this is going would be you know, terribly, terribly important. So what do we have out there in the innovative small business community that could help? How could we, the Air Force, predict our most um, essential readiness impact before they happen to us? Again, from this pandemic or from some other uh, area. So there's a variety of questions that they would like to have answered, and that's one way that they're thinking ahead because the key is how do we learn, evolve, and even perhaps reinvent ourselves in certain ways. I think you're gonna see Americans go more and more to the um, era of telework after this is over with. And I would suspect the Air Force will be doing that as well. Another question that Air Force Ventures would like to have answered is what apps and products and approaches can we use to allow more delivery of service within our Air Force from a teleworking perspective? For example, how could chaplains do a better job of talking to airmen, talking to their congregations, but do so at a distance and keep it going at scale? Things like this we've not really done before, and these are examples of opportunities to learn, evolve, reinvent in the future. Debbie, it's great to see you. Thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. Stay well. Thanks very much. You're, we'll be right back. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Tonight, we're pleased to announce a partnership between the Navy League and Government Matters on a virtual edition of the largest maritime expo in the United States. The Navy League had to cancel Sea Airspace 2020 in person last month after Maryland prohibited gatherings of more than 250 people in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Every day next week, we'll air a one-hour special Sea Airspace 2020 virtual edition from 1 to 2 p.m. right here on WJLA 24-7 News. If you're watching this on the American Forces Network or on the web outside of the D.C. area, you can register for the free webinar version of each program on FedInsider.com. You'll hear from Assistant Secretary of the Navy for RDNA, James Gertz, Rear Admiral Mark Busby, Admiral Carl Schultz, the Commandant of the Coast Guard, and a lot more. That's the latest from Washington. You can join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.